John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 677.IS6015, certificate number 32373. Juggalos! Are you down with the clown, Ken? feel like the answer is probably no if I'm not sure what the question means. This is a little bit like Fnord. Either you hear it or you don't. So I heard you say the word clown. Does that mean I'm actually a juggalo? <laughs> Am I secretly a juggalo? Do some people here, are you down with the... A lot of people are uh, maybe closer to being juggalos than they think. I'm juggalo adjacent. Are you? Uh, no. No, you're not at all. I have drunk uh, cheap soft drinks before. Uh, have you actually had fake up? That was very loud. Oh my God. It's some kind of, it was some sort of spam. Uh, like your system's been infected. Oh no, click here. Because I was on the, I was on some juggalo website and it's got some garbage uh, ad sales. I don't know. Uh, have you had Fago? Have you ever consumed Fago? I never have. And I don't know if I've even ever seen it. It's a, is it regional? It is it's like Fago, a store brand soda. Fago is a regional uh, soda pop that is um, that's sort of, I guess, it's actually headquartered in Michigan, but it's considered a kind of, uh, I guess, it, you know, a thing that's more more available in the southern United States and Midwestern states. But Michigan plays a big role in our story today. You can get Fago in Seattle at. Um, Ezel's chicken restaurants. Wait, that, that's what the, the is that what the soda fountain drinks are? They're uh, all Fago. Well, they're in they're in bottles. Oh, okay. But you can go to Ezel's. I'm sure you patronize Ezel's. I go to Heaven Scent, which is oh. Ezel's post divorce actually with Ezel chicken place. Sure, there. Are, uh, we, we don't need to get into the Seattle chicken schism. There, there, there was a chicken schism here in Seattle. Uh, the the uh, owners of one chicken restaurant took the recipe, where I guess the other guy, the other ones took the name. It's Oprah's favorite fried chicken. You know, she has it flown in. Yeah, and she's got, she's got a place on like Lopez now, right? Do you think she moved closer to Ezel's? Maybe so. She does. She has a big compound up on on Lopez. I hope we're not giving anything away. Lopez is, is one of the islands. Should we give Lawrence. away the latitude and longitude so people can <laughs> annoy <laughs> they, Oprah? They can look it up. <laughs> uh, 
Detroit, Michigan is the uh, is the locus of the Juggalo experience because uh, because they're that's where the band it, it, it from, originated. Right? There are you a are you a hip hop fan? I know that you are a music fan, and I know that you love uh, you love hip hop. But what what is the depth of your love of, for hip hop? I think it does not get into anything remotely horrorcore. Not. <laughs> like it really has to be like what were white college students listening to in you know oh tribe called quest oh perfect did you pick up on nwa or was it too uh was it too rough and tumble i feel like i was very self-congratulatory that i would listen to public enemy you know i would listen to the tough the tough rap that was also socially conscious sure it was very political yeah. but chuck d was a was an intellectual yeah, so I wanted I wanted Chuck D and Q Tip and guys like that to be my hip hop icons. Right, right. You were a uh, you were a Della Soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's that's very damning. Daisy Rock. Back in the eighties, uh, with the advent of gangsta rap, which was a which was a sort of development that happened simultaneously. I mean, Ice T was a was a progenitor of gangsta rap. Um, but definitely the NWA guys. But NWA really, uh, really like established a new tone, which was that they were no longer sort of rapping about things that were going to appeal to a broad audience. It wasn't party rap anymore. It wasn't about I feeling just, good. I just wanted to listen to Kid and Play, and suddenly uh, everything's about bank robbing and misogyny. N- NWA arrived on the scene, and their their um, you know, their MO was that they were going to talk about life on the ground, what it was really like in their experience growing up in Compton in Los Angeles. And it resonated with people because it felt, it felt very true to life. And it was, you know, it was, uh, it described violence, but it also, uh, I mean, you know, that the terminology was that it glorified violence, but it didn't so much as depict it in vignettes. They had stories about, uh, gang murders and and uh, and doing crimes and and part of the mythology of it was that they were actually uh, criminals themselves or forced into criminality by their circumstances. Uh, but it 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 resonated throughout hip hop culture. I had many many friends that loved NWA, and I feel like it was mostly like my delighted white friends. Yes, I don't think they just wanted the chance to say the N word, but I think they did. They definitely liked the taboo nature of the subject matter. Yeah, and it was very voyeuristic. I mean, like all popular music forms, the audience was not confined just to the the people who most resembled the artists. Right? It became the inside people. It was for right. It became. it became sort of universally suburban adopted. And I think it influenced a whole generation of young suburban kids to adopt maybe a little bit of a tougher, um, a, a tougher swagger than they had I'm probably wearing, I'm, earned. I'm still wearing my ex hat right now as we record this. If you think about Tom Hanks's youngest son, Chet Hayes, the, uh, but perpetually in the news, but not in any news that you would read, perpetually in internet news for just adopting that kind of unearned hip hop slang. He speaks in a kind of cadence that one wouldn't associate with Tom Hanks's, uh, what, whatever his home life was growing up, pretty stable and pretty affluent. Except we all know from watching these, you know, uh, 
movies that Ice Cube just became a suburban dad anyway. So. I, well, but he went the other direction, right? <laughs> he ended up he ended up acting in uh, in lighthearted comedies. Uh, but so the the um, you know, although gangster rap kind of had maybe more diffuse origins than just NWA, right? It was it was it was on the verge, kind of, because even rappers like Run DMC, who were who were who became very mainstream, you know, their raps were were talking initially about what it was like in it was street life, sure, in, in street life. They didn't even have to use their AK. Well, and they weren't they weren't especially violent <laughs> no, as much. That's, as, that's why they didn't have to use it. They didn't know, they didn't own one. Uh, but so uh, so this sort of realistic, you know, and gangster rap is is just like grunge, a thing that uh, a, a term that was applied rather than one that was self generating uh, from the culture. But there became all these different. Uh, it sprung up in New York and in Atlanta. I mean, it, it it resonated widely enough that it became a new genre. So much so that rappers in that early '90s period um, almost it became it, synonymous with rap. It yeah. was it was very easy to say, "Oh, rap, sure, that's the it's it's no longer a diverse form. Now it's about." Crime and misogyny, which and, was kind of a bummer. Well, and and, uh, and, and unfair, but also telling the true story of uh, poli- police interactions with inner city culture. Right. right, there was not. This was during a period in America where, in popular culture, we were talking as though we were in a post-racial society, and part of the reaction to that was this sort of depiction of, no, we're not in a post-racial society if you live in Compton or if you live in inner city Detroit. This was the soundtrack for people who had seen this Rodney King video. Right, exactly. And were no no longer under any illusion. This was was pre-Black Lives Matter, but a a similar kind of like, don't don't make any mistake that your experience in the suburbs is similar to our experience in the city. Right. Uh, But it did become uh, like sonically and culturally... Now, much less po- possible that you could have hip-hop music that was focused on togetherness, unity. It was, it was not there, – there was not now a popular subgenre of – A vibey summer hip-hop. Yeah, vibey summer hip-hop. And I mean, we, you still did have Salt and Pepper. You still did have legacy artists. But new uh, – new – rappers needed to be legit and if they if they weren't talking about what was happening on the streets there was a, a lack of legitimacy and, and, and they had to talk autobiographically right right they, they like, had to actually have the the bullet wounds and we see we see a lot of uh, uh of what is mainstream like big money hip-hop now came out of that school jay-z who is uh, who is rap's first billionaire? Uh, his origin story is as a, a, a street drug dealer and you know a kid that was that was um, in the life, as we say. Now he's a he was a, not always a tycoon. Not always a tycoon. he didn't have a, the monocle the monocle <laughs> at the time. Um, and Detroit because Detroit has a, a lot of um, a lot of factors that play into this, right? It was. A city in I decline. They, I thought they closed down all the factories. They did. They closed the factories down. But that was that's more that happened first in Allentown. 
but but Detroit was uh, was a uh, a city that uh, in some ways exemplifies urban blight. The uh, it exemplifies white flight. Um, Detroit had a very large African American population because of a, a variety of factors. The the factory work that car manufacturing that flourished in the fifties that that brought a lot of people in a great migration up the Mississippi River to the to the north from the south from the endemic racism of the South to the very subtle, <laughs> the much more subtle racism of the North. It's not that subtle, but I guess compared to Southern racism, yeah, sure. it's subtle. Compared to Alabama. Uh, and then, you know, the inner city uh, was left in this period of, of suburban flight, but also the inner city of Detroit was um, really famously sort of decimated by the construction of the interstate highway system. Mm, right. So they ran the freeway right through the heart of the most vibrant, uh, you know, black neighborhood in Detroit. And it created a, a condition of where there was no longer any pretending that there wasn't just a, a institutional hostility to black culture that started this, this history of riots in Detroit and, you know, burning the city down kind of throughout the sixties and seventies. Uh, so Detroit became a, a a hotbed of music, and uh, I mean, sure, we think of it as the home of Motown, um, and also, uh, you know, the MC Five. I mean, Detroit, Detroit really punk, uh, conti- continued to produce music that had a um, that had a social message, and music that in- that throughout the seventies increasingly became more and more aggressive i guess uh and by the by the advent of this era of, of early 90s gangster rap detroit was producing a, a a variety of kind of you know maybe subnational uh hip hop artists uh and it was at this time that uh, a couple of brothers by the name of Bruce. They, they weren't both named Bruce. That was their last name. Or there were, there was a, a, a little family, the Bruce family that grew up in poverty in, uh, in Detroit. Their, uh, their father left when they were young and absconded with what little money they had. And they were raised by a single mother. Uh, the oldest brother was named Robert Bruce, not, like uh, in Braveheart? not the Braveheart Robert Bruce, but, uh, but a, I, you know, I stopped short of calling him a lesser Bruce because we'll see. Maybe futurelings are thinking, sure, Robert Bruce, the 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 juggalo sibling, the font from which all culture uh, emanates or emanated. Uh, Robert Bruce was a you know they they were raised in I think what you would call fairly extreme poverty. I mean they they. Um, they went to school, but they were, you know, living on government subsidies. Um, Very working class white family. I mean, her, their mother worked as a janitor, and she was supporting the entire family on her wage. It's a, it's very similar, I think, to the to Eminem's origin story, also Which from is also Detroit, not far away, yeah. and not 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 far at all. They were white kids, the Bruce brothers, Robert and his younger brother Joseph. Uh, Dabbled in street gangage. Um, they were, you know, they they were. What do you do? Can you be in a white street gang, or do you just have to be so down that? Uh, you no, can... you can you can start. I mean, I think most street gangs start 
in a group of friends that are all just trying to make it, you know, you don't all always necessarily just try and go submit your membership application to the Bloods or the Crips. That's what I did. Is that, is that right? And it was... I never got an email back. No, I know. That's too bad. You, you probably needed to adjust what you thought your your salary should be. I thought the essay was very strong. <laughs> Uh, they had, you know, they, they dabbled in all of the kind of, uh, sort of stew of street cultures of the late eighties. Petty crime. Yeah. Petty crime. The, and the drugs of, you'd expect. And, and gradual adopt adoption of, uh, hip hop language and, and, uh, and signifiers. Uh, Robert eventually kind of tried to get out by joining the army and, uh, and left uh le- they were actually living in Farmington Hills which is a suburb of of Detroit. He left for the army and uh, from the late 80s to the early 90s he was there but his brother Joe uh, remained in Farmington Hills and became and started a started a street gang that was called the uh he started a street gang called the Inner City Posse. Now ah. to those of us living here in Seattle the idea of a bunch of white kids starting a little gang called the inner city posse. Well, especially if they live out in Farmington Hills, they're in some kind of blighted white suburb, right? Right. It, it seems a little unlikely. It, it would make you raise an eyebrow and it did there too. <laughs> they, they, they did not immediately have the cred as representing inner city Detroit. No, but, but uh, I think if you are, if you are in desperate poverty and living in, uh, in conditions where you're, you know, where your life is on the streets, it, uh, there are perhaps different rules about your adoption of what you hear as the language of the streets. Let's call it the language of the streets. Now the language of your and my streets, uh, are very different, right? It's mostly the poems of Robert Frost <laughs> right. and the, the dulcet terms, uh, dulcet tones of seals and cross. I'm walking down to the Thai restaurant, <laughs> listening to Yacht Rock come from the nearby uh, Mexican patio. But they uh they start uh they start uh, doing some crimes, they start doing some some uh raps. Uh there's a little bit of professional wrestling or I'm sorry, amateur wrestling thrown in there. It's a it's a stew of different influences. You see you see Kid Rock come out of the same sort of culture where it's a little bit redneck it's a little bit. It was kind of a merging of a rock country, uh, uh, kind of a hard rocks meets country ethos with, you know, the the spitting lyrics of hip hop. Right, as hip hop disseminated across the country, it was it was readily adopted by people who were already listening to Leonard Skinner and already, I mean, looking for protest music. And there's all kinds of protest music that. Uh, even though it may sound quite dissimilar, it it really works together in terms of, I mean, the message of the MC5 and the message of NWA aren't remarkably different when when posited against global capitalism, for instance. Um, it uh, it wasn't a I don't know like it it's not a scene I remember fondly. Like it doesn't it hasn't aged that well, right? There's there's not a whole lot of nostalgia for that whole. Kid Rock, Limp Biscuit, 
rap rock sound. No, that stuff is terrible. But there's a lot of, I mean, NWA really holds up. Uh, I think you could listen to it today because the music is, the music was largely created by Dr. Dre, who oh, I think I, we all agree is a genius. Yeah, I was not thinking of gangster rap. I was thinking of the uh, rap rock rap, fusion like in particular. White kid rap rock uh, mm-hmm. didn't it didn't become a let's say. I mean, we we cannot predict futurelings and what they're going to love, but I mean, it hasn't produced. There has never really been a a side of hip hop that was co-opted entirely by white artists and became a new style of the genre. It's actually pretty cool that it all kind of died immediately. Like, you know, I guess it spawned new metal first. The new metal still exists. I mean, and there are still plenty of white rappers, but they're always, uh, uh, they never, it's, it's not like rock and roll or even blues. Um, it, where it, it kind of watered down and, and diluted into the culture, right? And be, yeah, and became, you know, rock and roll is a is a uh, is largely a white art form, right? I mean, in terms of well, almost in- exclusively, right? The origins are not white, but no, uh, and, but once it became the voice of white teens, then it couldn't be right. It, I mean, it, the, it couldn't be the Rolling Stones. You still hear a very clear reference to the you know the black origins of rock. Uh, but by the time it got to foreigner or, uh, or, you know, like, um, no, for, I, foreigner is the end. You can't go even, further. I'm not even talking about as it morphed into heavy metal or as it morphed into the thousand other right. forms, you know, uh, Fleetwood Mac isn't really referencing, you don't look at them and, and, um, and even early Fleetwood Mac, which was a blues band and would have still made reference to the you know their black heroes could have by the time of mid 70s Fleetwood Mac Stevie Nicks wasn't saying like if it weren't for John Lee Hooker I wouldn't be here <laughs> talking about Rhiannon so uh and 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 curiously there's something uh, there's something about the the way that rap culture evolved and solidified in whatever is the truth of the legitimate heart of it. A certain kind of vernacular has really stayed the heart of it. Yeah. yeah that you, that you can't, I mean, you can, there will always be a Macklemore and even Eminem. Will there always be a Macklemore? Well, De- debatable. There will always be a new Macklemore. <laughs> there will always be the Macklemore bobblehead. I got at a Mariners game five years ago, but it's not impossible. I mean, there will always be that kind of word play and rhythmic word play. And especially now you have a, oh, an entire generation of white suburban teenagers that that's their primary musical vernacular. So when they sit and try and come up with music themselves, it, they're not going to, they're not going to somehow devolve into, uh, into, uh, Steely Dan, you know, they're going to, they're going to have rap as their primary way of thinking. Yeah. That's their language. Like, even if they're like, you know, I really want this to be about Dr. Who, but it will absolutely be through a, very 90s hip hop vernacular. But I, I think I think will that that's yet to be determined. But it but it certainly seems to me to be um, maybe the course that, that will that that is still revealing itself. But at this point, the uh, the Bruce brothers they realize that gangster rap is so prevalent that there's not a way for them to distinguish themselves on the national scene or even on the Detroit scene uh, in their sort of nascency as rappers. 
They need something to um, to set them apart, and and ultimately to try to set the Detroit scene apart. You got to have a gimmick, and gangsta isn't. Uh, they're they're not going to compete with with NWA or with Biggie Smalls, um, and 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 some of that may have to do with the fact that the quality of the raps was not as I, smart. I would suspect so. And so they happened upon. I mean, Eminem is a sign that somebody from you know five miles away, if they actually had the flow, had the flow, yeah, you know, couldn't could have made a go of it. Or uh, you can. Get face paint. Well, and what they did was they they happened upon the idea of horror rap, which is that it was coming from a kind of theatrical place where they were rapping about um, they were they were rapping about violence. They were rapping about uh, like uh, on themes that were sort of similarly emotionally similar to the experience of of. Uh, life in the inner city and, and the sort of true life storytelling of gangster rap. But it, the, it was an emotional similarity rather than a thematic one. And by, by rapping within the context of, of horror movies and the almost fantastical violence there, they felt like they could communicate. And a lot of this is retroactive, uh, theorizing around the, the, the rise of horror core, but that it was that it connected with people who felt uh, who who were raised in environments of violence and felt violent impulses that they could do it in almost a comedic style of hatchet murder um, that where they weren't they weren't actually claiming all to be hatchet murderers but somehow it resonated with them emotionally. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And there's kind of a mythology to in their in their work, right? Like it's it's a in, in the in the same sense that a horror movie would have a very elaborate hierarchy of of villains and monsters and demons. Like that's present in a lot of this music, right? Well, so the the two main uh, the two main rappers of uh, what became the insane clown posse, and they had they had a variety of people uh, that were that were in early iterations of this group. You know, kind of group of friends and associates that were all rapping, and they were trying to put together an act, including older brother Robert who was rapping under the name jump steady. He was an early kind of collaborator, but after a while, Robert sort of morphed into a, you know, a kind of consigliere or a older brother role. 
and the two rappers left standing at the heart of what had formerly been the gang of inner city posse. Yeah, it's got the same acronym. Uh, they decided that the that the brand ICP was strong enough that they needed to find a new version of it. They didn't want to be a gang anymore uh, because they were getting in trouble with the cops, and so they they um, so they're the two the two guys at the center are Joseph Bruce younger brother of Robert who rapped under the name violent J mm-hmm. and his friend, Joseph Utzler who rapped under the name shaggy Two dope. And I don't mean to say shaggy Two dope in a way that, that, uh, that belittles them. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to, I feel like that, that, that kind of belittles itself. You don't have to do much, but violent J and, uh, violent J the, the, um, the Bruce, the younger Bruce brother is someone who has very, colorful a very colorful dream life and a very colorful kind of almost um he's almost uh someone like a like a religiously inspired person that in a different context might be seen as a visionary he's a william blake type he's yeah he's someone with with the with fantasies so he's got notebooks full of Weird of drawings weird, and snatches of poetry. Weird and, sort of red dragons that yeah. he's drawing in the in the dark. Uh, but he had several sort of um, like dreams that he incorporated into the mythology of this young insane clown posse. One was of uh, what he described as the dark carnival, which was a dream of a kind of space, a purgatorial space, where people who were destined for hell – would be judged in this purgatory by uh, by a variety of kind of demonic personages. Is there a carnival in any meaningful sense? And it are there is, rides? It is pure. It is absolutely a carnival atmosphere. Oh, that's nice. There's juggling. There's uh, there's you know roller coasters. There's a uh, maybe a log ride while you're waiting to be while you're waiting for final judgment. Well, and and that feeling. Is there like a funnel cake? Uh, there it's it's funnel cake, but it's it's funnel Dark. funnel spiders. It's spooky it's, funnel it's, cake. Uh, spider funnels. <laughs> But you can imagine someone who had grown up in a world where they were, you know, they were poor and mocked and reviled even by the street culture in Detroit to envision uh, like a carnival in a purgatory prior to hell as being kind of a uh, fun, pleasurable environment, you know, better than just going straight to hell. Why not? It's kind of the tension of a lot of this kind of heavy metal music in that, you know, the devil and hell are really cool and we're going to sing about them. But on the other hand, it can't be that fun to be there. We're we're probably against going to hell, but yeah. we're doing all this bad stuff for the devil. We so should go to hell maybe, but maybe hell isn't that bad. Right? right. I mean, hell gets a bad story because most of what we hear about hell is from Christians who's... Who got out. Who, they, yeah, they escaped right. from hell. They're using hell as an example of what you don't want. Whereas, uh, you know, it's it the propaganda aspect of it. I mean, hell might be a lot more fun. They just have worse publicists. It's just like Castro's Cuba, you know. Right. Exactly. Like we, we heard it was awful because it was all the it was everybody who could get on a raft who wanted to get out of there. But you know, there's no advertising there. The beaches are nice. <laughs> uh, they, uh, Violent J and Shaggy Tudope actually made a decision not to rap about Satan. Uh, they they they've always been um they've always had a a very complex and self-generated spirituality but the dark carnival became part of 
their foundation myth. Uh, they decided to wear scary clown makeup because uh, they had a member of their early crew who who wore clown makeup as uh, in the, in his role as a hype man. It's got to be wrestling influence too, right? Wrestling. Pro wrestling has tons of that kind of That's thing. right. And people in the audience just love it. I mean, it's when you're on kiss. stage, kiss, you want to try and distinguish yourself and make yourselves the focal point of the show and clown makeup, especially big, big uh, graphical clown makeup. They're only using black and white paint and they have, it's almost like a, like Rorschach from uh, the Watchmen, a kind of, um, the blotchy Blotches. symmetrical things. Right. That, and do they always have the same designs? They, the two of them do. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, they're subtle evolution over time, but they have, they're, they are, um, they're recognizable in their face paint. And that's kind of a hip hop thing too, that the people seeing, you know, that everybody in the band, everybody in the group has a different personality and you know, their character and the kinds of things they rap about. There might even be little skits where they have interplay Right. Like that's something they get from hip hop. Right. And, and, uh, and so they using this combination of, of the dreams of violent J the clown makeup, the rapping about horror violence, uh, they started to make records and the records, I don't know, maybe this comes as a surprise to you, but they didn't sweep the nation, right? <laughs> they were, they were independent releases. They were, they were locally famous in Detroit or I'm sorry, Maybe not even famous, but lo- they were locally able to continue on in, in in their you know their music career. They continued to grow. At a certain point in 1991, they partnered with a guy who ran a local record store and put together Psychopathic Records, which was going to be their their own little label. Yeah, the venue for their own albums. Um, they in the brainstorming sessions around psychopathic, they came up with a, a friend drew a picture of a sort of. Um, uh, it's very similar, actually, to the original character used by Pearl Jam to promote their ten album. It's sort of a little stick figure with a uh, kind of dreadlocked hair uh, that Pearl Jam used to. They made a stencil and they would spray paint it on abandoned buildings around Seattle. Uh, the oh, little right, the stick man guy, and he's holding up his hands. He's holding up his yeah. hands like, "Yeah, I'm still alive." You know, he's got big hair. I remember in the '90s seeing that spray painted all over town. That's kind of a Keith Haring, Basquiat kind of a right thing. I had a band at the time called uh, Chautauqua. If that gives you a sense of how outside of this culture I was, I was like, we should have a band called Chautauqua. And who was your graffiti icon in Chautauqua? So what we had was a was a two color uh, graffito. Uh, uh, it was an overlay, and it became a three color, uh, which uh, they were stencils that we would spray paint the base one, and then the third one, and or the second one, and the third to create a kind of three dimensional um, stencil that just said Chautauqua across <laughs> a like a half circle. And I was spray painting that one night on the side of a of what I thought was an abandoned warehouse in downtown Seattle, right next to the Pearl Jam guy, uh, the hit little stick figure, which was on a wall covered with grunge era band graffiti. This was what nineteen ninety one, I think. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, a door opens right next to where I was spray painting, <laughs> and I look inside, and it's a brightly lit sweatshop. Full of sewing machines. This is the middle of the night. And uh, like small women, 
bent over sewing machines making who knows what mm-hmm. kind of garment. And the door swings open and there's a guy there who's like, what the hell are you doing spray painting my building? And I ran and he chased me. <laughs> he jumped in a car and Whoa. chased me all over downtown Seattle. Uh, it was horrifying. And I ended up I ended up getting arrested that night for vandalism because he chased me. Uh, I was running. He went the wrong way up First Avenue. And we, uh, we basically intercepted two cops who were sitting there on the sidewalk. They ran out and the guy said, he vandalized my building. We all went back to the building. I couldn't deny that I had done it. And you were, you were carrying all this Chautauqua merch. Yeah. They, they arrested me for vandalism and, uh, and I, they, they put me in a cell and this became a problem for me because I didn't address it in the courts. And then there was a bench warrant for me and the cost of it went up and up, but somehow I did not turn to horror core <laughs> rap I, I continued to play indie pop. Your one night in prison, it did not turn you to the dark side? It actually ended up being five separate times I went to jail over this because I continued, I didn't have any money, and I continued not to pay the fine. The fine kept growing, and every time I would encounter a cop, they would arrest me and put me in jail for, never for the night, always for five hours until I could get, I could call somebody and get them to come bail me out of jail. It seems like it's all Eddie Vedder's fault. Well, again, like so much of my life, the some of the pain is a result of Eddie Vedder and his dumb little man. He should sing songs with better messages for you. Don't, yeah. don't paint that building. <laughs> John <laughs> Roderick. <laughs> Let John Roderick go. <laughs> I don't know why all of a sudden he sounds like Abe Lincoln in <laughs> the Paul, animatronics. Paul Robeson. <laughs> uh, so so uh, through Psychopathic Records, uh, the Juggalos began to... Uh, accrue a a group of fans. And part of the explanation of the phenomenon is that this music, there's a lot of music that appeals to disaffected uh, people that feel marginalized people that feel like really music is the only venue where they can find a sense of belonging. What do you think it is about their particular music that attracts these kind of uh, outsiders? There's a, there is a kind of violence that uh, that maybe is it's more widespread now, and you could theorize a lot of reasons for it. But there is a there is a, an exclusion from modern society that if you're truly out of it, if you if you see no opportunity, no way to ever make it in the straight world, mm-hmm. and you feel like you are not only the enemy of the police and the state. But also the enemy, uh, not just the enemy of the rich, but of the middle class, of the lower middle class. I mean, if you are looked down upon by everyone in the culture and you see no avenue to escape, um, it, 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 it generates in one a kind of um, alienation that, and particularly if you grow up in an environment where you are the victim of repeated violence from your father, from the police, from whomever else, you know, where, where do you find music that, that, um, that expresses your experience? I mean, are you all, it's almost such a surreal amount of trauma you could conceivably experience that only of, I mean, no one would believe it if you told them your story, right. And only something that felt uh, comic book, 
would would feel like it related to you. And it's you know there's a lot of uh, identification with with comic book powers and and the violence that's there. A, a kind of we see in that last Superman movie where Superman is fighting some super dragon or some something that came from outer space and they destroy New York to the to the point that it, even like even if you're not counting it would represent a million deaths yeah. as they as they wreck this city and those deaths are considered just collateral damage of this uh, this fight between these it two makes Batman so mad Right, right. I mean, Batman's and, right, and rightly so killing a couple of people in a Batman. He kills people in clown makeup too. Like, uh, true. These, ICP should hate this guy. True. No, I think ICP likes likes Batman. Really, even though he's beats up on people in clown makeup. Well, because he's also in clown makeup. Ah, that's true. Right. So, which are which are you? Are you the Joker or are you Batman? I think ICP does not make that much of a distinction and would would just conflate the two it's just a mirror man so part of what became insane clown posse culture was that they took from anything that appealed to them pro wrestling country music rap uh horror movie iconography superheroes fago apparently uh gangsters yeah uh anything that that kind of came from this knowable scene and it and and in there in the great polyglot of america it all worked together and started to form its own vernacular. In 1994, at a live show, as uh, Insane Clown Posse was performing their song, The Juggler, which was About a, juggler. a juggler who was part of the Dark Carnival, um, one, of, uh, one of them, and I think it might have been Shaggy Too Dope, sort of spontaneously, or it could have been Violent J. It's really, you know, for me, one of them is the chubby one and one of them is the skinny one. <laughs> I think Violent J is maybe the more visionary of the two. But in the course of singing the song, uh, the juggler referred to the audience as juggalos. And the audience went, yeah. And he was like, all right, you're juggalo. You know, just kept kept riffing as you do in jazz. Had no idea that was going to be the moment that changed America. And, turn, and referred to the female juggalos as juggalettes. Good thing the song wasn't about like the trapeze artist or right. the contortionist or if, whatever. If it had been about spaghetti and they were the spaghettios. <laughs> mm, cold spaghettios. <laughs> uh, so, so the, the, the stuff around the culture of juggalos, uh, evolved somewhat naturally. Um, they, uh, they started to refer to themselves as the family. Um, Robert can see Robert, who was still very involved in the, in the insane clown posse, uh, put together a sort of music festival featuring, or, you know, headlining uh, ICP, but also, you know, bringing together a lot of different acts that felt like they were part of the same overall family. And they called it The Gathering. The first one happened in 2000 in Michigan, and it brought thousands of people to this sort of four-day festival. So they built up a following. They had at that point. And this is music that, um, I think was easily mocked in the, in mainstream culture because it was, because it drew from so many influences and because it was so unintelligible and because it was so violent, ridiculously violent that, um, and because they were in clown makeup, there are a lot of reasons. Also, they, neither guy really gives great interview. Um, 
they are using a they're using a language that is uh, that's knowable by their fans, but sounds um, maybe not uh, super smart to uh, to people in the in the more mainstream culture. But this is not a put on in any way. Like this is all stuff that seems really cool to them. Yeah, they're not. They're not exploiting a pre-existing audience as two outsiders right. who came from... And there's nothing ironic about the clown makeup or the monster tropes or anything. It just, it all feels very real and, and very cool. There is a tongue-in-cheekness. There is a recognition that this is, uh, that this will be baffling to people and that it's not... I mean, you don't put on clown makeup and not realize that you are doing a bit, but... Clown makeup is also a feature in serial killer Mm -hmm. movies or, you know, there's always a mask or a costume that the serial killer adopts. So there is supposed to be menace to it. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely meant to be menacing. It's absolutely meant to communicate your feeling of being not just an outsider, but you're not an outsider who's painting with oils in a garret. You are someone who would is capable of violence and would maybe be committing violence if you hadn't found this place. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start and who are they are they uh are they people like the two josephs is it is it mostly is it mostly like poor white people on the fringes of of society? Well, as, rural and suburban, exurban people. As insane clown posse, insane clown posse got bigger and bigger, and their fan base expanded. Uh, there are a lot of people that you wouldn't expect who identify as juggalos. Uh, rich Michelle people. Obama. No, but Charlie Sheen. <laughs> okay, that's exactly what I expected. <laughs> I was really, I was really waiting to hear. It's like former UN ambassador. No, no, it's Charlie Sheen. Yeah, Madeline Albright. <laughs> a lot of people started to feel a, a sympathy with uh, with Juggalos. I, I uh, in the early days of uh, Long Winters touring, um, the first girl who ever booked an out of town show for us was a. a a young lady named Stephanie who saw that the long winters were going out on tour. She already had found our album was an early adopter of our sound. And she said, look, I see that you're playing your first show in Minneapolis. You have to drive through Milwaukee, Wisconsin in order to get there. What if I booked a show for you in advance of the first show of your tour? I'll book it here in Milwaukee. I mean, she was only, um, yeah, 20, you know, like she was not even uh, able to book it at a bar, 
But she found a venue for our all ages show. She's uh, from Milwaukee. She's from Milwaukee. And uh, and she booked this show. And of course, we had never been on tour before. And I guess we just assumed that, yeah, your fans come out of nowhere and book shows for you. I mean, we were flattered. <laughs> and so we agreed. And our first ever out of uh, like on tour show was in Milwaukee for this girl, Stephanie, and her friend, Laura, who were the only two people that came. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they'd, she'd arranged a $50 uh, honorarium or something. And she and Laura, I think, you know, got $10 together themselves. And we stayed at, at her house that night. Stephanie had tattoos of the Hatchet Man, the the Juggalo logo, the logo of Psychopathic he, He's a slasher killer type character. Right. The, the, the Pearl Jam 10 guy except with a hatchet. Mm. And that's a I, good twist. If only Pearl Jam had thought of that. Right. Think how big they'd be. Uh, this was in 2002, 2001. I'm sorry, 2001. And I recognized the Hatchet Man as a thing, but I wasn't. I had. I was not aware of Insane Clown Posse at the time. And I asked her about it, and she said that she got the tattoo ironically because there in Milwaukee. Um, juggalos are huge. Juggalos Juggalo were, is huge. were not, maybe not huge, but were it was a it was a, a thing on the street, and she got the she had tattoos. She got these juggalo tattoos as a way of both mocking juggalos, but that's a oh, that's a weird thing to get a tattoo about. It wasn't right. She hadn't modified the juggalo logo to be something hilarious, uh, but also she felt like they. It was a form of appreciation for what she saw. I mean, she was a hipster, and she saw this as being a kind of... It's something in the culture worthy of recognition. Right. Or you're not going to put it on your arm. Right. It's not a, it's not a thing where... I mean, I don't, I don't think now she has a national tattoo. <laughs> uh, I knew... I worked with a guy in the early 90s who had the monkey's logo on one forearm. Big. You mm-hmm. know, from his wrist to his... The, the crotch of his elbow, the monkeys. And then on the other side, the opposite arm, he had it in reverse. <laughs> and I said, what is going on with that? And he said, do you remember the scene in Kung Fu at the, in the opening title scene of Kung Fu where Kane uh, takes the super hot iron pot and lifts it with his forearms <laughs> and it, it indelibly burns two tattoo, you know, uh, like scars into his forearms. And I was like, yes. And he said, well, it's like that, except with the monkeys. Imagine he's lifting up the monkeys. But he truly believed in the monkeys. He just also like. He has a very specific, he had a very specific idea. You have to admire the specificity of it. That's right. Like a lot of people would just be like, oh, I'll kind of see what six other people do and do the, the yeah. median of that. Do the little version of the monkeys right on my shoulder. Not that guy. But uh, but so they begin this gathering, which becomes a uh, like a four or five day festival that every year uh, takes over a certain venue. And for a while, they they went a different place every year, and I think partly it was that having done it one place, they weren't welcome. Local law enforcement did place. not want to see them again. At a certain point, by by the the sort of early mid two thousands, they'd moved outside to a place in Garrettsville, Ohio, where they could. Uh, where the concert could go 24 hours. And so they they started booking dozens of bands, uh, ultimately like a hundred or more bands that played 24 hours a day uh, that were a whole cross-section of rap and rock. 
that uh, that resonated with their followers. Uh, and the gathering grew and grew. The family grew and grew until it was until uh, in the um, like in the 2010s, maybe 2010. They had a, a, a one of the gatherings peaked at twenty thousand attendees or more. Wow, uh, which is That's a big festival. It's a really big festival. Eventually, they moved. They left Garrettsville, Ohio. Anywhere that they would have the gathering, the people of the town gradually turned against them. Sometimes didn't gradually turn against them. But <laughs> it was the second they burned down the Dairy Queen because there was a, an anarchic quality. the The Juggalos themselves feel very governed by a set of rules that's clear to them. And uh, crucially, one of the one of the defining or, or a set of defining qualities is that juggalos are deeply anti-racist, anti-bigoted. Uh, their uh, w- fundamental premise is that everyone is accepted. So they try not to be exclusionary, although it's self-exclusionary by the fact that it's very the culture is very hard to penetrate as an outsider. But if you feel drawn to it at all, which a lot of people do, you are, you're welcomed by the juggalos. I assume it's the kind of thing you get into young. This, this appeals to young, largely young men, but they stick around because they feel like they've got a home and literally a family, capital F family, not just a family, but a cosmology. So, right. So Robert and Joe, uh, very early on in their lives, when they were, you know, still poor teens. One day they saw a butterfly and they thought it was a beautiful butterfly and they captured it in a jar and they studied the butterfly and all of its colors and they were sort of mesmerized by it. And their plan was the next day to release the butterfly back into the world after they'd, after they'd enjoyed its company. But over the night sealed in a jar, the butterfly died and both uh, Joseph and Robert were traumatized by having killed this butterfly. It was a thing that uh, that they described as feeling like they'd committed a murder. And they, at the time, swore that they would not, um, you know, that that they would never kill again, right? And that um, that when they got to heaven, they would apologize. They would find that butterfly and apologize to it for killing. It. So they're ex- explicitly non-violent slasher movies. Super slasher, vi- but uh, not non-violent against butterflies. Oh, they're never going to kill again insects. If, if you are a butterfly. And in fact, every Insane Clown Posse album is to this day, dedica- it says right on it, dedicated to the butterfly. That's a, that's a surprisingly delicate uh, aesthetic choice. Well, so there's a lot of that... M- uh, admixed into the the um, the belief system, and a few years ago, and this was uh, I think you you may have joined me during this, but I had a series of uh, kind of talk events at Bumbershoot here in Seattle at the festival. I remember where I had a little bit of a budget, and I invited people to come and do um, do a kind of counterpoint discussions. You guys did a little Q and a about we stuff. Did, yeah. We taught, we, we, I heard from people that were from different walks of life and then we, we, we had Q and a, and one of the panels, well, I, I brought a, a man, 
from the Midwest who described himself as the world's manliest brony. He, um, he was a motorcycle mechanic and a very buff, burly guy. And he came to describe the world of values, um, as, uh, as projected into the world by the, my little pony television show. And this was a phenomenon uh, of a few years ago where it felt like, well, the bronies are a new voting block, right? The bronies may one day be responsible for us electing a, a brony president. Who will be the first brony president? Uh, My Little Pony, the television show, eventually, you know, went as went the way of all television shows, and brony culture has somewhat dissipated. It was quasi ironic in a way that. Oh, but not really. I mean, there were a lot of people that really were living according to the values uh, promulgated by My Little Pony, Good which was. Uh, to love everybody. Sure. Friendship is magic. Friendship is magic. The other person on the, on that panel was a juggalo who came up from the Southwest and, um, and talked about juggalo culture. And during the Q and a, and, and, uh, and it was somewhat posited like what, which is better juggalos or bronies. Um, but during the Q and a, there was a lot of hostility from the audience toward the juggalo representative and a couple of people. We're more of a brony town. We sure are. A couple of people got up, one woman in particular, and quoted several Juggalo lyrics about, uh, you know, where, where the lyrics were, um, you know, sort of indefensible violence against women. And, and, um, and she, you know, she read this, these lyrics out loud and, and sort of said, how do you, how could you possibly defend this? Uh, the, our Juggalo representative, whose whose Gnome de Guerre is Matt the Dragon— Everybody has a, everybody has a, you're going to have a juggalo name for sure. Uh, Matt, the dragon who was in the process of making a, a uh, documentary about uh, the juggalos. I'm not sure if it ever came out, but he was very much a, uh, a member of the family. He said to the audience, the people in the group, uh, the people, the people who joined the family, they find an outlet for this ugliness in them. And in finding that outlet, it neutralizes the ugliness. Like rather than being in isolation, rather than feeling these these hateful feelings with no place to put them, this music and this family, it, it attracts you through the violence and then the family embraces you and you end up abandoning that violence as you become a member of this this like lifelong community. I assume it's because the community is not doing any violence. This no. principle does not work in the U S prison system, for example, like uh, it, it must be, it must be core that the existing community has these very strong precepts that it seems surprisingly ethical. It, it does. And it is, although to the outside world, it seems the opposite. And at, uh, at during the mid two thousands, or I'm sorry, the mid 2010s, the FBI no less than the FBI declared the juggalos a violent gang. Oh, and partly it was because they were, you know, they were traveling the world. Um, I mean, they look like they're wearing gang colors. They appear to, they act, they function as a gang in, uh, in the way that they are a family, a community. They, I mean, they, they appear to be preaching violence and the, the FBI declared them a gang. Well, that 
certainly increases their persecution complex, but also really functions to persecute them. I mean, if they are a violent gang, the FBI isn't going to stand idly by while 20,000 of them converge on cave in rock and have a, you know, like a crazy 24 hour music festival. That means the FBI is probably sending in undercover FBI agents dressed as jugglers. Dressed as like, juggalos. Like who here in this office looks the most like a juggalo? And then that, that guy's got to invent his new persona, like, you know, Gary the Mauler or whatever. You for sure, they for sure do. Uh, in response- I assume the, every juggalo I meet is actually a- An FBI a, a government plant, yeah. When you meet a juggalo, which you surely will, having heard this episode, you will, we will, it's just like seeing Volkswagen bugs on the, on the freeway. Once you see one, then you start seeing them. Um, you can tell a juggalo. They, um, they have a very, very strong vibe, um, which is, in my experience at least, unmistakable. How would you describe and indescribable? Energy? Oh, okay. Sorry, uh, I, there, for, I forgot. I've apologized for asking. There is a kind of um, there's a kind of insanity that feels like not a put on, but a sort of uh, a feeling of uh, it's a it's a they seem often joyous uh, and unpredictable and kind of fueled by uh, by the subculture. I mean, it 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 does. There are lots of juggalo lyrics which are indefensibly bad, mm-hmm. not just in terms of what they espouse, but also they're just bad. Um, like like just, as, as art. Yeah, just like bad lyrics. But when you look at what the juggalos do, they're inclusive uh, to a fault. They accept... Everyone, they're early adopters of every kind of, I mean, within juggalo culture, like there is no question of whether or not you and your identity have equity there. Mm. Um, They are, you know, uh, like women are uh, are equal to men there within that culture, although equally sort of self-exploiting. The juggalos in response to this declaration of, gang status actually staged a march on Washington to protest their, uh, their like being declared illegal. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, they, they scheduled this March in 2017 on the same day as Trump's, like million Trump March, million this deplorables was, March. This was a coincidence. They were. This was not a uh, uh, in uh, sympathy with no, Trump or his cause. Complete. Just. I mean, it's probably an example of how juggalos aren't great at scheduling <laughs> things. <laughs> that famous thing about juggalos, they don't use the calendar app. But uh, but for a brief period uh, during this time that the that the the unified deplorables were all descending on Washington. Juggalos disagree politically. I'm sure there are a lot of there are a lot of Trump supporters that are also juggalos and vice versa. But uh, but in general, the inclusivity of juggalo culture is antithetical to the sort of Trump. Um, uh, yeah, they're, like, they're drawing from the same places in America, but they these guys found a different messiah. Yeah, they're they're promoting a whole different value system. 
And there was a lot of speculation that there would be a clash that juggalos and Trump supporters would meet in front of the Lincoln Memorial and have a battle royale. It didn't pan out that way, partly because not as many people as were expected attended either rally. Uh, <laughs> and it's too bad because I, I was watching it in real time, just just super duper hoping that it would be the the battle of the American flag do-rags, uh, but it didn't pan out. Uh, the, the Insane Clown Posse has sold more than six and a half million records. They have two platinum records and five gold records. Um, they continue to be a real force in American. It's it is a, it's a subculture on par with uh, subcultures that we know a lot better. Subcultures are very popular now because you know as sales of things decline, as mass culture items as everything gets nichified, like what corporations start to cling to are the diehards. You know right. the people that you know will buy every. Star Trek Blu-ray, the people that will buy every Disney whatever. And I assume the Juggalos are a demographic to be to be reckoned with. Unfortunately, de- uh, they're a demographic that doesn't buy a lot of stuff. Oh. It's extremely hard to market to them anything other than stuff that's approved by, or, you know, like music and culture that comes out of the subculture rather than comes from outside. I mean, how do you market to people who are resolutely poor and ultimately kind of anti-capitalist and anti, um, I mean, there's in, in most cases, there's no way for them to ever be conformist. Juggalos are body modifiers. They are, um, they're not, I mean, once you have a face tattoo and you've split your tongue in half and pierced both sides. A lot of barista jobs are just gone right there. There was, there was a, a, a famous instance where someone paid when some, where someone said like, uh, I bet you won't cut your ear off for 20 bucks. And a guy was like, sure, cut his ear off. This happened on camera. I've seen it. Uh, <laughs> Juggalo Van Gogh. Pretty, or, you know, cut the tip of his nose off. Like crazy, crazy kind of, uh, you know, dare culture, prank culture. Uh, but as recently as uh, 2014, the Juggalos had to move their gathering again. And uh, they they tried to move it to Kaiser, Missouri, but the citizens of Kaiser rose up and, uh, you know, like prohibited them. Trouble. Here comes trouble. With a trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for posse. And a guy by the name of Steve. That's that's all we know about That's his juggalo name? Um, Steve, who uh, has been described by Violent J as a down-ass ninja. Okay. Uh. Steve said, I own 140 acres in the Legend Valley, and I'd like to, uh, I'd like to make that open to you as... Um, is this near Kaiser, Missouri, or is this... Uh, where is the- I think Legend Valley is in Ohio. Let me make sure. Yeah. Is it Ohio? Yes, it is. Uh, some where. Legend Valley, Ohio. Uh, Steve, owning this valley... 140 acres in Ohio, no matter where you are, uh, Steve has money or comes from money. And he was all, he already identified as a juggalo had been to a prior gathering and said, um, come, you know, come use my legend Valley. It's your Shangri-La, uh, because the juggalos have, have gone to battle 
for their rights against the FBI. They attracted the ACLU as a as fellow traveler. They've become a cause celeb for a certain segment of society that that looks to the outsiders. And uh, and now that includes the omnibus. And that concludes Juggalos, entry 677.IS6015, certificate number 32373, in the omnibus. Uh, now, we do not have uh, a Juggalo-like army of uh Wait, can FBI you say that for accused. sure? Do you, do you think the futurelings are not slowly coalescing into, a, into an army? I like that the FBI hasn't accused them of... Um, subversion yet uh but i guess there's still plenty of time you know it's you and me they're gonna come after i'm the violent J, and you're the shaggy two dope or maybe it's the other way around although i'm the chubby one and you're the skinny one uh we're neither of us chubby but you're the visionary which is the one that has all the the notebooks full of dragons yeah i guess that's that's me that's gotta be you for sure and your name starts with J. that's right and i am uh, i'm not super violent and i'm not really shaggy but i am too dope you are too dope uh so, yeah, uh, we did not encourage the kind of idolatry that the uh, insane clown posse did. We don't have a yet. We don't have a dark carnival mythos of our own about the afterlife yet. Yet. We don't <laughs> we don't invite tens of thousands of people out to central Ohio every year. Yet. Yet. This is all coming. This is all part of our master plan. Uh, in the meantime, uh, in our time people could follow us on social media at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project. Uh, they could, they congregated, uh, there was a virtual gathering of the Future Lows um, at the Futurelings Facebook page. And uh, they could communicate with us directly via electronic mail, uh, if you remember what that is, at uh, the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. They could send us physical mail, uh, send us all your Juggalo t shirts uh, to. Omnibus Project, that's P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Speaking of uh, outsider art, uh, the Omnibus is now an independent enterprise, uh, deeply suspicious of uh, capitalism and consumerism, just like our juggalo brethren. Uh, We rely on the goodwill and support of our listeners to make this an ongoing enterprise. Uh, If you feel moved to contribute, I want you to get up. I want you to get up and go to the window. I want you to get up and go to the window and then walk. (laughs) We're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. No, just close the window and go back to your laptop and go to (laughs) patreon.com slash omnibus project. Open your browser window. I want you to get up and go to your browser window. I want you to open a new tab. Uh, and you can uh, contribute financially to the uh, to the ongoing success of the omnibus if you have the means to do so. We appreciate and are touched by your support. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea whether juggalos uh, disappear as so many subcultures before them. They're or, doing well. They're or, in year what? They're in decade two, right? Right. Or whether they're or decade three. They yeah. started in the early nineties. Oh wow. Uh, or whether uh, juggalos gradually subsume all of our societal institutions beneath their dark gathering, dark carnival, rather. Uh, it certainly isn't that far from the dark carnival of, uh, 
that's that's appearing throughout the world uh, in terms of the administrations of many countries. Uh, but uh, we hope and pray that, well, I'm not sure. I, I personally, and I think Ken joins me in hoping and praying that civilization survives outside of the umbrella of juggalos. I mean, I hope juggalos survive, but I hope that... Yeah, it's not clear. Did you just say you want only juggalos to die in the cataclysm? No, I I believe that juggalos should continue on their path, but I would also like, uh, for instance, um, George Plimpton to survive. And I don't think that the works of George Plimpton can survive the oxygenless environment of the juggalo literary canon. Well, you can have both. Can you? I guess you could have two competing future states like Oceania and East Asia. Oh, yeah, you could that's have, what I mean. You could have Plimptonia and Juggalonia. We've always been at war with Juggalonia. We'll have Juggalonia and we'll have Omnibonia. <laughs> um, let's hope that Providence allows us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.